his final conversation with his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in this time where this is kind of like his final plea to, to the disciples. He knows what's coming, and he wants to prepare them for his death and for everything that's going to come after. Knowing that there's going to be pain, there's going to be grief, there's going to be confusion, he's trying to remind them of everything that he has taught them so far and prepare them for what's to come. And so this conversation started out with Jesus declaring, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we talked about how that was Jesus saying, if you want to experience this new life, this eternal life that I have for you, you need to follow in the way that I have walked. And then Jesus went on to talk a lot about his union within the Trinity, his union with the Father and the Spirit, and, and this beautiful invitation that he gives to us to join in with that union. Jesus talked to his disciples about the importance of being rooted in his love, and that it's through that that they will be led to love others. And now we come to the end of this conversation, and, and Jesus is talking to his disciples about when the world hates you. That's what we get to talk about today, so you know it's going to be really light and breezy. Um, but he, it's this really, so, really sobering message where Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to this way of peace, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be challenges, but I want you to stay the course. I want you to continue walking this way of peace. And so that's where we're going to turn today. We're going to be looking at John 15, 18 through 16, 4. So the words should be up on the screen, and I'm going to read through that for us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is giving this forewarning that, yes, when you walk in the way of peace, you're going to experience pushback. There's going to be challenge. There's going to be persecution. If God himself in human form was persecuted, we have to know that we'll experience that too if we follow in his way. We can't avoid it. I think that it's important that we talk about what persecution is. Because there are many times within the American church um, that, that people will claim persecution for things like, you know, somebody wished them happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Or, 
or feeling upset that there's, there's no public prayer in schools, or feeling like there's an attack on their biblical values. There are times that, that the church experiences pushback because of, of its hypocrisy, because of the way that it excludes people, because of the ways that it participates in oppression and discrimination. That pushback is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that when you walk this way of peace, when you follow in his way, when you uphold the dignity of those who have been oppressed, when you speak up for peace and justice, when you lift up the voices of those who have been silenced, there's going to be pushback because there are people that aren't going to like that. That is going to feel like a threat to their power, to their comfort, to their sense of control. And because of that, people may reject you, they might try to silence you, they might slander you. And the world that Jesus is referring to here, when he says that the world is going to hate you or persecute you, it's not just unbelievers. Because we see that he says in, in chapter 16 that there, there are people that are going to push you out of the synagogues. There are people that are going to think that in persecuting you that they're offering service to God. So this includes people who are within the religious institution who claim the name of God, and yet instead of following the way of Jesus, they have chosen to follow the way of the world. See, in Jesus' time, there were many of the religious elite who they used their religion just as a way to grasp for power and status and to exclude others. This is the way of the world, not the way of Jesus. And we know that this wasn't just an issue in Jesus' day, but it's something that we see even now. And I have to admit that it's, it's been very discouraging when, at times when I am compelled by my faith, compelled by the example that I see in Jesus, and speaking up for issues of social justice, speaking up about racial justice, and, and advocating for a more just and compassionate immigration system, and to experience in those times the pushback from within the church. And I have to admit that that I have at times really struggled with this idea of, of the unity of the body of Christ. And it's interesting because if, if you were here four years ago when, when I preached my first sermon, as we were going through a series on Romans, um, and it, it was all about the unity of the church. And it talks about, you know, when, when, when people believe in Jesus and confess that he is Lord, that they are part of this body of Christ. But I think that that means something more than just saying a prayer and expecting that we have assurance to get into heaven. The way that the Bible talks about believing and repenting, it's not just something that happens in our mind, but there's actions that follow. It is about giving our lives over to God, submitting to the lordship of Jesus and following in the way that he has walked. And so we see we see even within the church that there is this division at times. Even as we are walking in the way of peace, we are trying to be peacemakers. There are times that division is going to come as a result of that. And as I've kind of wrestled through this, um, even just in the past year, I've come to these verses like in Luke 12 where Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but rather division. And similarly in Matthew 10, he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And at face value, those those statements seem really contradictory to everything that we're talking about, right? That Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He came as a peacemaker. He calls us to be peacemakers. And yet he's saying here, I have not come to bring peace. 
And I think that the, the peace that he's talking about there is more the world's version of peace. I think that it's what Martin Luther King Jr. would refer to as negative peace, which is the absence of tension. That is not the peace that Jesus has come to bring. But also when he says that he's come to bring the vision and the sword, he's not calling his followers to pick up their arms and to fight. Because that would also be contradictory to Jesus' own words and his own life. Like in Matthew 26, when he tells Peter, put your sword back in its place, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Or in Luke 9, when Jesus rebukes his disciples because they want to call down fire on a village that has rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, that is not our way. You can't fight fire with fire. But I think that the division that Jesus speaks of here is more like the image that we see in Matthew 25, where it talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, there are those who will call on my name, but they have not fed the hungry. They have not welcomed the stranger. They have not visited those in prison. They haven't loved their neighbors. Well, those people don't really know me. But the people who have done those things, who have loved their neighbor as themselves, they are the ones that are my true followers. Jesus says also in Matthew 7, when he's talking about the difference between false prophets and, and, and his true followers, he says that you will recognize them by their fruit. So that's important for us to, to look at the fruit, not so that we can be the judge. We're not the person to sit here and decide who is actually following Jesus and who is not who's in and who's out, that's not the point of it. But we need to be able to, to look at the fruit, to discern what is right, what is actually the way of Jesus and what is not, so that we're not led astray. See, our, our goal as followers of Jesus and as peacemakers should always be restoration. But we also have to hold that in the tension of knowing that at times our peacemaking efforts are going to lead to division. And yet, even in the midst of pushback, and persecution, we must still continue to walk in the way of peace. It's easy in those times when we feel attacked to either retreat and shrink back or, or to become defensive and try to attack back. It makes sense because those are just the, the automatic human responses when we feel attacked. Fight, flight, or freeze. And yet in those moments, I think that's showing us what it is that we're actually pursuing. Are we shrinking back because we would rather preserve our own comfort, our own good status within relationships? Are we attacking because we want to have the power, we want to assert our own glory? Those things might provide some instant gratification, but it won't last. In those moments, we have the opportunity to choose to continue in this way of peace, to continue to pursue God's kingdom which is working to restore all things. And you know, it might be easy for some of us to seek restoration and uphold the dignity of those who are being oppressed and those who are vulnerable. But oftentimes, it's a lot harder for us to seek restoration for our enemies. And yet, this is what Jesus calls us to. In Matthew 5, 43 to 44, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what sets us apart 
as followers of Christ. It sets us apart from the way of the world that we love not just those who are on our side, but we love our enemies as well. So our peacemaking efforts are not just about pursuing justice so that those who are evil can be destroyed. Because the reality of that is that I would then deserve to be destroyed. I all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this, this is the problem that I think we see in our culture today where there is very much this cancel culture where if somebody has, has said something racist or, or somehow participated in some type of injustice, that we just need to cancel them, we need to unfollow them, unfriend them, cut them out of our lives. And the problem with that is that that's not true accountability. It's, it's true that we need accountability when there is injustice, but that kind of cancel culture is not accountability. It's simply just waging war without putting in the work of restoration. And I want to be clear that there are times when we have to kind of take a step back from a relationship, from an interaction. There are times when, when we've maybe put in the work of peacemaking and it's just not coming to any fruition. And we have to know when it's time for us to step back because that might not be a healthy situation. But even in those times, our goal should still be restoration. That is our desire even if we're not able to see the fulfillment of it. And we have to understand our place in this, that we are not the judge, and we are also not the savior. And so while we're called to participate in this restoration, it's not up to us to bring it to fulfillment. And having this right view of ourselves is going to require humility. And that is what it takes to, for us to be able to stay the course on this way of peace when it gets hard. It requires humility. So let's talk about what humility is not. <laughs> humility is not weakness. It's going to appear to the world that humility is weakness because the way of the world is all about grasping for power and status. And yet humility is not weakness. It actually takes a great deal of strength and it shows maturity. Humility is also not self-abnegation or low self-esteem. That's not going to lead to peace. And I can speak from experience in seeing the times when, when I've kind of been in that, that place of just the low self-esteem, the insecurity, feeling like I have nothing to offer, feeling this inferiority complex. That doesn't lead to peace. That leads to a great deal of anxiety. It has led me to, to feeling this imposter syndrome where I either feel so overwhelmed because I feel like I have nothing to offer that I just step back and I, I can't do anything. Or on the other side, I feel like I have to prove myself. And then my peacemaking efforts become not about restoration, but they come about filling myself up and proving my worth. That is not the humility that Jesus speaks of. And neither is humility something that can be faked or forced. Often when we encounter somebody who is kind of faking the humility you can read right through that. You can sense that. Instead, humility must be rooted in this tension of belovedness and brokenness. If we go back to the very beginning in the creation story, we see that, that humans were created in the image of God, that God loved them, loved us from the beginning. He called us good. And he, with, within that, we have this inherent dignity this inherent belovedness. 
And yet, we live in a broken world. We all sin. We all experience brokenness in some way. And yet, that brokenness does not negate our belovedness. When we're able to hold this tension of the belovedness and brokenness for ourselves, that leads to humility, and it leads us to be able to hold that tension for others as well. Right? If I am a beloved image bearer, then my enemy is also a beloved image bearer. If I can recognize my own limitations and wrongdoing, that helps me to have grace for my enemy and their limitations and their wrongdoing. Jesus was our, our perfect example of what humility is. In the way that he lived his life, even coming down to earth, taking on human form, showed his humility. And his humility came out of this strong sense of his identity. He knew that he was the son of God. He knew that he was beloved by the Father. He knew his purpose. And yet what sets us apart from, from Jesus is that there was no brokenness in Jesus. He lived in this world without sin. And so he did not have to be humble. He deserved to grasp on to his status, to his glory. And yet, out of his grace and mercy and his love for us, he chose to humble himself. It says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And living in that knowledge should drive us to humility. It should drive us to have that same mindset as Jesus, as it talks about in Philippians 2. If we have received that truth, we should willingly lay down our privilege and our power and our status for the sake of others. The Bible Project says in their video about justice, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice others. When we really receive the truth of the gospel, it should lead us to humility, in which we recognize the humanity and the dignity of others, and we seek restoration for them, whether they are our friends or our enemies. In 2 Timothy 2, 22-26, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Humility doesn't mean that we just let people walk all over us. It doesn't mean that we just excuse evil. As it says here, when we see evil, which the Bible Project defines as mistreating another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God, we are called to correct them, but to do it with gentleness and humility. The correction should never be about us winning or us proving that we are right, that we are woke, that we know better. Not about me and my glory, but it's about God's glory as he brings about redemption and restoration. And he writes, says, love makes both the lover and the beloved more truly human. As we hold that tension of our own belovedness and brokenness, 
We are led to hold that tension for others. We are led to love others, to seek their restoration as well. I recently heard this story of, of a woman in South Africa, and her daughter had been murdered. And though she may have had the right to, to hate the person who killed her daughter, she chose to forgive him. And she was asked in an, in an interview what forgiveness means to her. And she said, forgiveness is giving up your just right to revenge. In the way of the world, it's eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. If you've been hurt, you have the right to seek vengeance. You have the right to hate. But it takes humility to be able to lay that down and to choose forgiveness instead. And yet, because of this woman's forgiveness, both she and the man who murdered her daughter were able to experience restoration. They were able to experience reconciliation, where they have a relationship now. And the crazy thing is they even run an NGO together. Like, that's the kind of restoration that they've experienced. And the man who had killed her daughter said, by her forgiving me, she has released me from the prison of my inhumanity. Beautiful to see that kind of restoration. But it takes, it takes humility to give up that just right to revenge. And I think it also takes understanding this truth that we see in Ephesians 6.12, where it says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the spiritual powers of evil in the world. We have to understand that there is evil, and we are called to speak up. We are called to do something about that, while at the same time having grace for the people who are caught up in that evil. Ben McBride, who's an Oakland-based pastor and peacemaker, says that we have to be hard on systems and soft on people. We have to recognize the systems that, are, that have been built up to oppress people, and we need to do something about that, while at the same time having grace for the people caught up in it. In an interview with Ben McBride, um, he, he was talking about um, he was talking about some of the protests that were happening last year. And he was there in Oakland. He's, he's a black man, and he, he was there at these protests that were against police brutality. And he was, he was holding the line, essentially, between the protesters and the police. He was engaging with both, side, with both sides, upholding their dignity and their humanity. And the question was asked of him, how do you do that? How do you see the image of God in your enemy? And his response was, navigating storms and storm-like moments don't happen in those moments. They happen in the preparation before you arrive at storm. Essentially, he was saying his ability to do that wasn't because he just showed up in the midst of the conflict and was able to just do it right then, but it had to do with all his preparation ahead of time. It had to do with the relationships that he'd been building with police officers for years. It had to do with his own spiritual formation the spiritual practices and rhythms that he had in place to make sure that he was being formed into Christ-likeness. It was that preparation that allowed him to engage in these areas of conflict as a peacemaker. And we have to recognize that for ourselves, too. That in this call to be peacemakers, we can't just step into the conflict and expect for it to happen. We cannot force the fruit, but we can tend to the roots. 
has to be rooted in God's love, in God's presence, so that we can bear the fruit of peacemaking. It makes me think of, of the scriptures in the New Testament where it talks about reaping and sowing. Scriptures such as James 3.18, which says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. There is this promise of reaping what we sow, that we will, if we sow in peace, that we will see the fruit of that at some point. And yet we can't control that. We can't control what it's going to look like, restoration, that peace that we're seeking might not always look like what we're wanting it to, and it might not come in the timing that we expect. And I can speak to this from personal experience. I feel like these last few years for me have been, have been a season of really tending to the root, of really focusing on, on my own spiritual formation, of focusing on the areas of brokenness within myself, areas of brokenness within some of my relationships, and doing the internal work of healing. You know, some of that's been through counseling. Some of it's been through conversations with trusted people in my life. And some of it's been through contemplative practices. And some of it's just been through sitting with God and pouring out my heart to him. And there have been times along the way where I felt so frustrated because I felt like I'm sitting here, I'm doing the work, and I'm not seeing the results yet. I'm not seeing the fruit that I'm seeking. And yet, just recently, there have been several, several times recently where I have walked away from, from an interaction or a situation, and reflecting back on it, I, I recognized something different. I have recognized I didn't feel the tension in that situation that I would normally feel. I was able to engage from a healthy place. I was able to be true to who God created me to be. And so I was able to engage in a different way. And I have to admit that it kind of surprised me. Of like, hey, there wasn't this kind of big miraculous change, like this is when I went from the brokenness to the healing. But it was over time of like years, years of putting in the work, of trying to sow in that peace before I began to see that there's restoration happening. And you know, a lot of times that restoration, it has to happen internally first before it happens externally. But if we want to see the fruit, we have to tend to our roots. If we want to continue to walk in this way of peace, even when there's pushback and there's challenges, we have to remain in God's presence and love and let it heal and transform and empower us. You know, peacemaking is not a step-by-step -step process. Um, I feel like there have been so many times, I, as somebody who's, who's passionate about peacemaking, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, I read a lot of books, I, I study what the Bible says about peacemaking, and I admit that there are times where I'm like, I just, want, I just want someone to give me the answers. 
Like, what do I do in this situation before me? What's the right way to go? There have been times that I have felt like, like Thomas in, in, John 20, in John 14 at the beginning of this conversation, where he's saying, Jesus, just show us the way. Like, what's the way? We don't know how to get there. I have felt that so many times. And yet what Jesus says is, come be with me. I'm the way. Come sit with me. Come learn from me, and I will show you the way to go. Dear Swigert, who is one of the co-founders of Global Immersion, which is a peacemaking organization, recently said in, in a podcast episode, peacemaking is not about growing fluent in issues of justice or change and maybe grabbing a tool or two. Becoming a peacemaker is literally a lifelong process of formation. We give ourselves to the work of formation such that the habit of our lives is restorative. I think that that's not always what we want to hear, right? We, we want the, the easy fix. We want to see the results. But the reality is, with this way of peace that Jesus has called us to, it is a lifelong process of formation. But the beauty of that, I love what he says, that, that as we pour ourselves into that, that the habit of our lives is restorative. That peacemaking is not just something that we do and participate in, but it's who we are. Peacemaking has to start within us. And I think that it's with this in mind that Jesus says at the end of his conversation with the disciples in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's this reality that there will always be conflict and challenges and pushback. But we can still experience peace in ourselves and help to cultivate peace in the world around us if we follow the way of Jesus and if we allow the Holy Spirit to heal us and transform us and lead us. The way of peace will first and foremost change us and it's also going to cost us but it will lead us to a peace that the world cannot offer. As we close up here today, um, I, always, I always like to leave you guys with, with some, some type of reflection. Um, and as I was just considering what, what our reflection should be for today, and thinking about just what we've been talking about, that it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit happening in us, what I was led to was Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. And this, this is scripture that I have prayed myself time and time again. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so my challenge to you guys is, is to spend some time this week praying that prayer, sitting with God, because that's not going to be enough if we just listen to this, this message and then go on our way. That's not going to truly transform us. But if there's something that has stood out, if there's something that God is speaking to you, you need to sit with that. Ask God what that is. Ask him what he's trying to teach you. Allow him to do the work in you. And in that, sometimes there's going to be some conviction there of something that we need to change or do differently. But there's also grace in that. There's this knowledge that, that God sees us that he knows our hearts in ways that nobody else could. That even when we're experiencing persecution and pushback from others in our way of peace, that Jesus sees us, that he knows our hearts, and there's grace in that.
encourage you guys to spend some time with that this week.